If you have a Bible, would you open up with me to the book of Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. Today we're starting a new series. It'll be our series for the fall, leading all the way up into uh, the Advent season later on. Uh, but we're walking through the book of Ephesians. We're going to start with chapter 1, verse 1 today, and then um, hopefully sometime in the spring, maybe even uh, finish up and conclude this thing. But we've titled this series, Built Together. And as I'm going to contend this morning, the, the heartbeat, the, the, the main thrust, the main idea or purpose behind the book of Ephesians is, uh, is the church being unified. Uh, the people of God being gathered around the person of Jesus and finding their identity and their hope uh, and, and, and their activity flowing from him and the life that he's given them. And so that's where we're, we're going over the next several weeks. I hope you'll journey with us. Today's kind of an introduction to all of it, and we'll really get down into the, the details beginning next Sunday. Uh, but for now, let's look in chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Ephesians, and I'm just going to read the first two verses this morning as our jumping off point. The Apostle Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. So after a, uh, a six-year hiatus and a, a brief stint in rehab and a band breakup, my favorite band, the Turnpike Troubadours, released an album recently. And it is a banger, y'all. It is quite possibly one of my favorite albums to come out in a long time. And so the Troubadours are from Oklahoma. The entire band mostly is made up from uh, where my wife and I grew up. And so I've been listening to the album a lot. I, uh, I love it. And I, we were driving around the other day listening to it. And I told her, I was like, you know, it kind of dawned on me the reason that I like this particular group so much is, I mean, lyrically, they're really good. They have some really profound lyrics. Musically, they're really talented. But what I like the most is that about every, I don't know, three or four tracks into any album, they're going to make a reference to something that you have to be where I'm from to know what they're talking about. It's like a little hidden Easter egg, a little, a little nod to like backwoods Oklahoma where they're going to say something. I'm going to be like, oh, you got to be where we're from to even get that point. You know, like, there, there's, there's a little bit buried in there, a little bit of truth buried in there that you can't understand if you're just, you know, fr not from where we're from. So for instance, this new album has a, a, a lyric where he says, bottoms up now, darling, let's head on back to town because the bottoms aren't the kind of place you need to hang around. And I'm like, no one probably knows what the bottoms mean unless you're from Southeast Oklahoma. Now, if you're in West Virginia, you call it a holler. If you're a normal civilized person, you call it a valley or a watershed. But where I'm from, if you're in a low-lying place, you live in the bottoms. I grew up in the bottoms. People come to the bottoms to coon hunt like my dad would. Uh, they have lyrics referencing things like Winding Stair Mountain, which is my, basically my front yard. Or my favorite song of theirs is called Southeastern Sun, referencing southeastern Oklahoma. And it opens up like this. Well, I guess I was born with a gun in my hand. And I'm like, oh, I feel seen. <laughs> We would walk the big clear cuts in the pine timberland. And I'm like, literally, I would look out my front door and see the clear cut of pine timber that, that the local, you know, um, the paper, paper mill had taken and, and harvested. And so, and he says, but um, the army man called me and told me I could defend the free and draw me a paycheck and get a, get a tech school degree. And I'm like, I remember that phone call. 18, the local army recruiter saying, son, you know, kids who grew up where you're from, they, they don't have a whole lot of options. So if you'll sign up for the army, 
we can pay for your school one day. And so I, I hear that, and I'm like, oh, it, it resonates. It, it, it feels like someone knows where I'm from, and they, they know something about me. Well, why do I go on about my favorite band? Well, one, you should listen to it. It's good music. Uh, two, if the band happens to listen to our podcast, I would take some measure of you know, gifts as a return. Tickets, perhaps, especially if they're playing at the Red Rocks. Hit me up, fellas. But uh, really, the main reason is because there's something about knowing a particular place and a particular people that brings words to life. Like there, there, there's an origin story. There, there's an idea behind what's going on and what's happening when someone's writing these words that really make it make sense. And that's true not only in music and not, not just in art or poetry or film, but it's true in the Bible as well. So, so the words on the page that we just read make some sense and have some measure of interest, but But if you know the backstory, if you know the people, if you understand the place, if you can kind of discern what the point or the purpose of the letter is, then it it really begins to come to life. It really begins to resonate and you begin to maybe perhaps even feel seen or acknowledged or you can apply whatever truth is discovered in maybe perhaps a different or a unique way. And that's my hope with our study of the book of Ephesians as we begin this journey together is that we'll, we'll be, be able to see what's really going on here, that, that this, is, this letter is written by a person identified here as the Apostle Paul, a man who's had a radical transformation from, from Saul, the Pharisee and the persecutor of the church, to Paul, the apostle and the planter of the churches, the, the, the leader in many respects of, of the, the churches amongst the Gentiles. What's his story? And what does that have to do with the book of Ephesians? And then it's, he says it's identified here in chapter 1, verse 1, to, the, to Ephesus, the church that is there. Well, what, what's going on there? Where's Ephesus? Why is that important? To the saints and the faithful. Who are those people? Why those particular monikers or descriptors for them who are in Christ Jesus? That's really the point. That's what we're going to hope to discover over the next several months as we walk through this letter together. That's what I want to show you today. Three quick things that I hope will bring light to this letter, that I hope will make it come alive for you over the next several weeks. It will cause your your interest to be piqued and maybe even your heart to be provoked by the Lord himself. As we look at the the place, what's going on in Ephesus, the people, who are the recipients of this letter, who's its writer, and then finally, the purpose. What's the point? Why is this in our Bible and what does it have to do with how we live our lives today? First off, let's look at the place. Look back in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are, here we go, in Ephesus. What do we know about about Ephesus? Now, that's a fun question for me to be able to answer because of all the letters written in the New Testament, of of all the stuff that we have collected of the New Testament, we probably have more intel and insight into this place called Ephesus than perhaps any other place in the New Testament. We get, we get a lot of details uh, amongst the churches that were planted in, 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 in the ancient world that, that Paul was leading out, and Ephesus has maybe the most recorded of all those churches. Now, um, we also know some things from history. We know where Ephesus is located. You can go to it today. It's you know, I think in modern-day Turkey, there's a, there's a, in the, the Greco-Roman world at the time, it was a very pivotal town. It was a seafaring town. There was a port there. Uh, It had the temple of Artemis, which is a key feature for really, I think, understanding this entire letter. One of the seven, I think, wonders of the ancient world, this giant temple that was built that was uh, to to draw people to come to worship the, the Greek god Diana or the pagan god Artemis. 
One of the key features of what Artemis was supposedly um, doing for people who would come there to worship was to increase fertility. So there's some sexual issues that's going on in Ephesus as well. But because of the size and the propensity of this particular temple, um, it affected the populace in Ephesus. Ephesus was made up of trade guilds and construction workers. We know that in, from you know, most of history that there were a lot of, it took a lot of people to build a temple back then. They didn't have modern technology, te- technology. They didn't have cranes. And so a lot of hands on deck, which is why, as we'll look at the book of Ephesians over the coming weeks, we'll see that Paul uses architectural language. He talks about things that would make sense to a group of people who largely have construction backgrounds. That's why he says that you need to know and understand the height, the depth, the width of the love of God. That's why he says that Jesus is the chief cornerstone, the the foundation upon which the church is built. He's talking in construction language, so the construction workers know what he's talking about. The, the, The city was made up of those type of workers, but it also included evil spirits. Um, there, there's lots of historical record that because of the, the pagan nature of the city, because of the temple itself, because of the pursuit of a fertility through this particular goddess that the pe- people worshipped, that there was a prevalence of demonic or occult-like activity. And so that, that's a common theme as well. It's why when, you, when we get to the end of Ephesus, Paul's going to say, look, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against powers and principalities and the spirits that, that drive and compel our behavior. Uh, we'll see things that, uh, that also come to, to point out that Ephesus was a place of great financial prosperity. It was a place where people could go to make money. Because of the temple and because of the draw there, folks would move there to, to profit off of these things. Just as with any large you know, uh, cultural draw that, that people would come to see and travel large swaths of land to go, go and visit, there's always going to be a bit of an economic stream built around it. If you don't believe me, check out Griceland. You know, we have that here. People come from all over the world to go look at this one particular place. Why? I don't know, but they do. <laughs> and so that, that's part of what's happening in the, the place. The, the reason why this particular uh, area is, is, is vital and pivotal, not just for the, the Greco-Roman world and not just for the finances of the day, but also for the church and for the people there. Now, what I love about the, the, the story of the, of the place of Ephesus, though, is that it's not just found in history. It's actually found in your Bibles as well. In the book of Acts, Luke, the, the gospel writer who's writing his second letter uh, to, to explain the movement of Christianity to Theophilus, this particular person, he tells the story of the founding of the church of, of Acts in Acts 18 to Acts 20. And it confirms All that we just said were these cultural features that we know about the city of Ephesus. Everything that we just talked about, the Temple of Artemis and the the trade workers' guilds and the evil spirits and the occult and the opposition to the gospel, all of that's there in those two chapters. And I would encourage you to go back and read that origin story. We first learned that Paul did what he always did to found the church of Ephesus. He goes into the synagogues and begins reasoning with the Jews concerning the truth of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection mainly convincing them that he is the Messiah. And we know that in the book of Acts, when the Apostle Paul does this, when he goes and kind of confronts the powers that be about the truth of Jesus and the fact that he calls us to repentance, two things tend to happen. One, conversion sweeps through. People begin to to trust in Christ. They, They turn from their sins. They repent. They turn to Jesus in faith. But then when that happens, opposition arises. 
And so Paul comes to, to Ephesus and begins reasoning from the scriptures. And then Luke records for us in Acts that a man named Apollos was there, a man who was strong in the word. And he kept on in the tradition of Paul as Paul carried on in his missionary journeys. And so Apollos begins to direct the people of God to the truth of Jesus as well. One of the key features of the initial planning of a church is that the truth of who Christ is gets preached and, and told on a regular basis. And then we're told in the book of Acts that Apollos had some, um, some gaps in his theology, had some misunderstandings about the things of Jesus, perhaps, or some limitations. And so Priscilla and Aquila, a couple, come along and teach him more faithfully in the way of Christ, such that they contend with him and with others about the truth of who Jesus is, and the gospel begins to take root. And people continue to be, continue to be converted. People continue to be um, brought under the, into the light of Christ. And then something remarkable happens. Paul returns, and people begin to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, the book of Acts, there's a lot that we could go into. I'm not preaching Acts. I'm preaching Ephesus. But you need to go into that detail as well. People begin to um, be awakened to the truth of, of Jesus. And when they, they, they do, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And their lives begin to change quite, quite quickly. But then the opposition increases. And evil spirits rage against the, the work of Christ and the, the advancement of the gospel. So that in Ephesus... We see this one instance, it's one of my favorite episodes in all the New Testament, where uh, Paul has gone about preaching the gospel, Priscilla and Aquila have brought Apollos along, and he's done the same, and then it says that there are seven sons of this, this high priest named Sceva who begin invoking the name of Jesus to cast out evil spirits. They see what Paul and the apostles are doing, they see the power of the gospel, so they start calling on the name of Jesus, and they cast out demons. Well, one of these demons comes out and says, look, well, we know who Paul is, we know who Apollos is, we know who the apostles are, but who are you? And then it says that the demon jumps on the seven sons, beats them to a pulp, leaves them bloody and naked, and they run away. So Ephesus has some theatrics, y'all. There's some stuff happening there. The, the truth of the gospel is conflicting with the, the evil of the age, the occult practices there, and, and God is getting glory, and darkness is being pushed back. But then the market begins to reflect this as well. We're told of a man named Demetrius who lived in Ephesus, who had his well-being and his livelihood from selling these uh, small G-God trinkets uh, about Artemis to the people there. And so Demetrius goes and gets all the the, the, the unions of the day who make their money and their profits from the temple. And they say, look, if this keeps happening, if the gospel keeps going forward, these guys keep talking about Jesus and their big G God keeps pushing our little G God out, we're going to lose market share. We're going to lose money. This is bad for business, y'all. We got to do something. And so in Acts chapter 19, they start a riot. And so the hope of the gospel is now not just conflicting with evil spirits. It's not just conflicting with cultural norms. It's conflicting with the market. Such that by the end of that, Paul has to leave and go out, go out of town. And the church is founded, but there's, there's, there's conflict there. There's a, the, the hope of the gospel is going forward. People are continuing to, to repent and be baptized. But, but it, it looks kind of like it's on shaky ground. So the, by the time we get to Acts chapter 20... The Apostle Paul's on his second missionary journey. He stops back over near Ephesus and summons the church there to bring the elders to him. And there the Apostle Paul sets the elders up for, for what's coming next. He, he, he besieges them. Look, guard the good deposit of the gospel. You've you got to shepherd the flock, the church that Jesus bought with his blood. This is your charge, he tells them. Because, he says, after my departure, which by the way, he says, whenever I go away, they're probably going to kill me. 
I'm going to Rome. I'm not coming back. He says, but after my departure, savage wolves will come in. Fierce opponents of the gospel. They will even rise up from within your ranks. Some of the elders who are there are going to be financially incentivized to abandon the hope of the gospel and to use the gospel to profit from it. Because as the gospel goes forward, it's going to keep pushing against the market forces of our day. And so you've got to be on guard. Watch out for yourselves. Watch your doctrine, he says. And then he's going to send Timothy later to help that church be formed and, and to, to know what it means to, to be rooted and founded in the gospel. But this letter to the church at Ephesus comes after that statement. Hey, watch out, guys. The day is coming. Conflict is coming. Opposition is coming. And if we stay true to the gospel word, that's going to happen. Now, why, why do I tell you all that? Why do you need to know about the place? Why do you need all those details? Because what I hope we'll see as we study the book of Ephesus together is that we'll begin to see that truth emerge in our own lives. That if the gospel is making progress in our lives, if the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus is changing and transforming and shaping us, if it's leading us to live these otherworldly lives where we stand in contrast to the world around us, then we should not presume that things are going to be easy. We should not assume that the conflict is going to be minimized. In fact, we should assume the opposite. If we're going to stand for the truth of the hope that we have in Jesus, it's, it's going to impact the world around us. And so the place where we find ourselves may look a little bit like Ephesus. There are oppositions to the gospel all around us. There are cultural norms that we've perhaps adopted or accepted into our own lives that if we're going to follow Jesus have, have got to be rooted out of us. We've got to ask some hard questions. How has the gospel so impacted us that at the place where we find ourselves that that we've got to see the things that Jesus pushes back against and, and allow it to not only change us, but change the world around us? How have we assumed that the place that we inhabit is always going to be a place of safety and, and comfort with little opposition or conflict? Why have we assumed that? When we look at the book of, of Ephesus, we see that Paul tells us the truth of Jesus is always going to confront the idols of the day. It's going to push against the powers and principalities. It's going to be impossible for the church of God and the people of God to, to get embedded with the, the, the politics that rage amongst their day. That's what Paul tells the church. You've got to be unified because it's not against flesh and blood that we have, we have rivalries. It's against powers and principalities. How does our place impact our faith? What is our faith doing to push back against the idols of our day? How is the truth of Jesus challenging even our prosperity? Place matters. It mattered in Ephesus. It, it matters in Piperton. It matters in you know, southeastern Shelby County. It matters. And that place is always going to be in some ways oppositional to the hope and the truth of the gospel. Can we see it? The book of Ephesians gives us lenses to see, eyes to see, hopefully, where we're located and what God wants to change and, and shift even in our day. Secondly, we learn about the people. These opening verses tell us about the people. We learn about Paul, as I said, who is an apostle of Christ Jesus. That's how he identifies himself. Paul was Saul in, in the beginning phases of the book of Acts, who has this radical conversion in chapters 8 and 9 of the book of Acts. We learn about that, where Jesus himself appears to him and says, hey, man, stop persecuting the church because you're persecuting me. Paul is converted. He spends three years being trained and equipped, and then he's sent out. He goes as the apostle to the Gentiles. 
And so we, we see in the ministry and the life of Paul this pattern of, of teaching the truth of Jesus and seeing churches raised up as a result of that, just like the one in Ephesus. But then he's writing back to churches where he starts by going into synagogues and reasoning there with the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Christ. But it's not just Jews who start coming to faith. It's also Gentiles. And so we see that even in this opening salvo, Paul is talking specifically to Jew and to Gentile. In fact, that's sort of the point of the book of Eph- uh, 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 the letter to the Ephesians, is that this is going out to two different but distinct people groups who now are in the same boat, in the hope of the gospel, in Christ Jesus. These two groups are going to be built up together. And so Paul's ministry then is to teach them how to get along. How will, how will the Jews accept the Gentiles? How will the Gentiles accept the Jews? How will the Jews come to see that these outsiders are now family to us? And, and, and will they respect our customs? Will they respect our culture? Will they do the things that make us ethnically and culturally what we are? Will they, will they adopt those practices or will they continue doing the, thing, doing the things that made them outsiders? And therefore, how are we going to be able to get along with them? How are we going to worship with them? How are we going to like them? How are we going to be able to spend time with people like that? Those are the sorts of questions that are very real and very pressing in this particular place for these particular people. The letter of the church at Ephesus is, is calling on people who are asking these sorts of questions. Hey, you've got to reconsider some things. Paul's going to say by the time we get to chapter 2, look, we were all children of wrath, Jew and Gentile. We were all opposed to the hope of the gospel. We were all without hope. But God, who is rich in grace and mercy, made us alive in Christ Jesus. It is by grace we are saved through faith, not by works, so that none of us can boast No one's got a leg up on someone else because of where they were born or what culture they practiced. We all got in by grace, which is why Paul's going to say in chapter 3, we have one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father who is above all, in all, through all, 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 Jew and Gentile. Paul's going to make this point so, so strongly because these people are the people that are asking these sorts of questions. They've got to come to see who they are in Christ Jesus. In fact, That's why I think at the back half of verse 1, you get these two really interesting descriptions of the people there. Look back in the back half of verse 1. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, I spent the better part of a week and a half just on those few words because there is a lot of debate as to what Paul's saying there. Uh, A lot of scholars believe that these two descriptors... Saints and not are faithful, but faithful being a descriptor of the people. Saints and faithful are, are aphorisms or, 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 or clauses or words that, that Paul would use of Jews and Gentiles. Saints comes from the same word group from which we get holiness. The people who are set apart by God for his purposes. We know that the same word group is used in the Old Testament when it's translated in Greek for consecration. That the act in the Old Testament in the temple when God would take possession of things, the altar, the, the sacrifices, everything bound up in temple worship. God had those things consecrated. They had to go through ceremonial practices to be ritually made pure. Those things were holy. They were for God, for his use, just like Israel was. And so when Paul calls these people the saints, he's talking about the Jews who converted, that are now possessed by God, filled with his spirit. 
These people who are, who, who, who are now owned by God, that God had bought them with his blood. It's what Paul says to, to the church in Corinth. Your life is no longer your own. You've been bought with a price, the shed blood of Jesus. And so that begins to affect everything. In Corinthians, it's your sexuality. Here in, in Ephesians, that, that, that ownership that God takes over you, it affects who you spend time with. It calls you to begin to forgive people. Even as Christ has forgiven you, so also should you forgive one another. That's what it means to be a saint, to be possessed by God. But in the faithful, that, that word was typically used by Paul to talk about Gentiles who had converted, those who had come to believe, those who had, had said, you know, I know I'm traditionally an outsider to this group, but because of faith, I'm now in. It's these two groups then that Paul is addressing, that both of them are in Christ. Both the outsider and the insider have been brought into an entirely new thing. They are in Jesus together. And that's really what the point of the letter is all about. We'll get to it more in just a second. But these two groups are united in Christ. They are held together by the thread of Jesus. They may not have anything else in common except for Christ, but that one thing they have in common defines everything. I, I recently had to work on my garage door. It wasn't opening, right? And I had figured out that there's these, those tension cables that kind of make it raise up. And I was thinking about this because my garage door is really heavy, or maybe this just says something about my lack of strength, but it's super hard to lift that without the garage door opener. And I got to look at it, the tension cables that actually cause the thing to raise. And they're, they're slightly larger than a piece of spaghetti. Like they're not super big. They're, you know, tiny, but they're made out of steel, and, and I got to thinking about it as I was re kind of wrapping them around to get the thing to work again. I was like, man, this little bitty thing is carrying all the weight. But because of the material, because of what it's made of, it can do it. And it's sort of the point that Paul makes with the connection that Jew and Gentile have in, in Christ. It may not seem like much. You may look at your culture, you may look at your preferences, you may look at the things that you think are good, right, true, and beautiful in the world. You may not like the same music or eat the same foods. You may have all sorts of preferences and peccadilloes that are in completely different camps. But the one thing that binds you together is made of steel. And, and it may not look like much, but if you will press into that, you will become an entirely different sort of person. A new people emerge because being in Christ changes everything. And that's the argument of the book of Ephesians. That's what we're going to look at over the subsequent weeks. What does it mean for us to be in Christ together? What does it mean for us to check our preferences at the door? What does it mean for us to let go of the things that we think define us, but in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, are minuscule? What does that look like? See, so many in the church today want the church to be a place of uniformity, not a place of unity. And would prefer for us to have all these peripheral things that in the grand scheme of things does not matter in common. Like we, will, we will nitpick one another. We will evaluate one another. We will analyze one another to see if we can line up on all this stuff out on the margins. When Paul is going to tell us in the book of Ephesians, there's one thing that matters. And if you are in Christ together, you're being built up into a cornerstone together, then there, there is no limits to what God can do in and through you, who you can become, what, what can happen as a result. If you can hold on to the one thing and let go of all the other things, God can do something amazing, which gets us to the, the purpose. The purpose of this letter, as we'll see, I think, is to call us to unity, to call us to unity, to call us to discern what's the difference between unity and uniformity, 
What does it look like for us to align our lives together on being in Christ together? How do we together achieve or accomplish what God has called us to? How do we receive from God grace and peace? The two things that makes up the two groups, grace, this Greek idea, this this idea that we have unmerited favor from God and peace, shalom, this Jewish idea that God makes all things new and all things right. How, How do we get that? We get that by being unified with one another. Ephesians is going to call us all to lay down our preferences for the sake of our faith. We're summoned to be a part of a community with a much higher purpose and calling than just aligning on all these peripheral things that, again, in the grand scheme of things, does not matter. And then secondly, I think the purpose of Ephesians and the way that we even grow into that unity is that it teaches us that our activity always follows or flows out of our identity. What we do together as the people of God is a result of who we are as the people of God. The life that we live, the the practices of, of, of our faith, all of those things emerge because of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. The entire letter is written this way. So we'll get into the weeds in subsequent weeks. But the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are written in a tense that is entirely different than the last three chapters of the book of Ephesians. The the, the Greek language has different ways of putting words in tenses so as to help you understand what the author is trying to say. The first half of this letter is written in the indicative tense. Indicative. It's indicating something. It's telling us something has happened. The second half of the letter is written in the imperative sense. It's telling us to do something as a result of what has happened. So the first three chapters have one command. Three chapters, one command. You know what it is? Remember. The one thing we're told to do in the first three chapters is to remember who God is, what he has done, and what that means for all of our life. That's all. Indicative. This is who you are in Christ Jesus. This is what God has accomplished before the foundations of the world. Chapter one gives us the viewpoint of salvation from God. This is what God did before you ever even had a thought. If you could see salvation from God's perspective, and we're gonna have to deal with the the difficulties of election and predestination because Paul talks about it a lot in chapter one. But if you can see salvation from God's perspective, then by the time you get to chapter two, you can experience it from your perspective. He made you alive. He has brought you to life so that you can have works that give him glory, so that you can be bound together with brothers and sisters in the faith, so that you can experience one faith, one baptism, one God who's the Lord of all. It's indicating that. And then you get to the last half of the book. So then, here's how we live. This is the way that faith affects our work. This is the way it affects our marriages. This is the way it affects your your life if you're a son or a daughter. This is the way it affects everything. This is how you should go about your days. Put on the armor of God. Put on the belt of salvation, the helmet of salvation. Read the word. Pray. All of those things flow out of who you are in Christ. A summons to faith, to believe that, to to cling to that, to be found in that so that we can become these sorts of people together. In his introduction to this great letter, the great preacher John Stott wrote this. He said, we have been raised from spiritual death, exalted to heaven and seated with Christ there. We have also been reconciled to God and to each other. As a result, through Christ and in Christ, we are nothing less than God's new society. 
the single new humanity which he is creating and which includes Jews and Gentiles on equal terms. We are the family of God the Father, the body of Jesus Christ his Son, and the temple or dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are to demonstrate plainly and visibly by our new life the reality of this new thing which God has done. First, by the unity and diversity of our common life. Secondly, by the purity and love of our everyday behavior. And next, by mutual submissiveness and care for our relationships at home. And lastly, by our stability in the fight against the principalities and the powers of evil. So God, as we journey into the book of Ephesians, would you make these truths come to life? Would you so root and ground our hearts in the person of Christ that we can experience this otherworldly relationship that we not only have with you, but that we have with one another? And that that relationship would cause us to push back against the powers and principalities around us. That we would be different that our conduct and the shape of our life would be formed by the person of Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the truth of your word. And God, would this all be to the end that just as in the founding of this church, darkness is pushed back, people are converted, faith begins to flourish once again in our day. And Lord, that you would do signs and wonders amongst us that would defy explanation because you're a good God who loves us and you have good things in store for us. Lord, may we have the faith to believe that this morning the trust and the hope in Jesus to see it through. It's in his name we pray. Amen.